interview the passengers on the train, view the body, examine what clues there are, and then, well, I have faith in you. I am assured it is no idle boast of yours. Lie back and think. Use, as I have heard you say so often, the little grey cells of the mind, and you will know. He leaned forward, looking affectionately at his friend. Your faith touches me, my friend, said Poirot emotionally. As you say, this cannot be a difficult case. I myself, last night... Ah, but we will not speak of that now. In truth, this problem intrigues me. I was reflecting, not half an hour ago, that many hours of boredom lay ahead whilst we are stuck here, and now a problem lies ready to my hand. You accept, then? said Monsieur Bouc eagerly. C'est entendu. You place the matter in my hands. Good. We are all at your service. To begin with, I should like a plan of the Istanbul-Calais coach, with a note of the people who occupied the several compartments, and I should also like to see their passports and their tickets. Michel will get those. The wagon-lee conductor left the compartment. What other passengers are there on the train? asked Poirot. In this coach, Dr. Constantine and I are the only travellers. In the coach from Bucharest is an old gentleman with a lame leg. He is well known to the conductor. Beyond that are the ordinary carriages, but these do not concern us, since they were locked after dinner and have been served last night. Forward of the Istanbul-Calais coach, there is only the dining car. Then it seems, said Poirot slowly, as though we must look through our murderer in the Istanbul-Calais coach. He turned to the doctor. That is what you are hinting, I think. The Greek nodded. At half an hour after midnight, we ran into the snowdrift. No one can have left the train since then. Monsieur Bouc said solemnly, The murderer is with us on the train now. That was a reading from Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. So that's the book. What's the breakfast? Well, also, where's the breakfast today? Because... Mm. If the sound quality is slightly different to our usual episodes, it's because we've got our portable mic with us, because we're, we're on the go. Um, we're recording this from the Orient Express itself. Um, are, we nearly, are we at Calais yet? <laughs> <laughs> it looks a lot like Bassenthwaite. Bassenthwaite yeah. yeah, we are, in fact, at Bassenthwaite uh, Station Cafe, uh, where the dining area is the train that was used in the 2017... Kenneth Branagh, Murder on the Orient Express films. So we're on, we're, we're in the Agatha Christie lounge, enjoying their finest full vegetarian breakfast. We've got, um, we've got vegan haggis and vegan sausages, potato cakes, mushrooms, tomatoes, beans, the works. It's fantastic. Magnifique. Yeah, and we've got Cumberland tea, which is very nice. Not, not drinking our normal Yorkshire tea. It's hard to hear Cumberland follow anything and not think sausage, but just for the reassurance <laughs> of any listeners that are weirded out by that, Cumberland tea is not made from Cumberland sausages. <laughs> I mean, we, we didn't ask. <laughs> it doesn't have a little vegan Well, we, we don't know, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're now in, now you, that you mention it, it does taste quite porky. <laughs> you can buy Cumberland tea from the gift shop here as well, actually. Ah. Wonderful, like, Lakeland-themed scented candles. Mm. We've got one at home called, uh, I think it's just called Derwent Water. Oh. It's really lovely. Um, and it felt very appropriate to come here 
um, for this episode because this feels like a big one. It feels like mm. I can't believe that we did a whole year of a book of breakfast and didn't do an Agatha Christie. It's crazy, isn't it? And Agatha Christie has been a big part of my life. Mm. Um, I think it was Orient Express that put me on to Christie. I think it was the first book I read, but I ah, went through a, really? a period of fanatically reading all the Poirot novels, certainly. Um, yeah. We'll get to that, I, because not only are we doing Murder on the Orient Express, and not only are we enjoying a book and breakfast on the Orient Express itself, it's your birthday. Yes. Happy birthday. Yeah, thank you very much. And that was why, <laughs> for this month, because it was your birthday episode... I let you. I knew we'd do an Agatha Christie, mm. and I, I said it's your choice. And in some ways, you surprised me. Um, but it, I, I guess, on the other hand, it's not a surprise at all because <laughs> you said it has to be Orient Express. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wondered if you'd think that was just too obvious a choice. But then, on the other hand, it's the obvious choice. Yeah. So it's the right choice, and because we'd not done a Christie yeah. so far, it, it was time to uh, to welcome Agatha to the breakfast table. Oh. Um, so yeah, so obviously you started to touch on it, but. So how did you... Well, actually, before before you answer this question, I want to uh, bring up something that you often say on this podcast, um, yeah, a, a remark you make about how people are born generally knowing <laughs> yeah. certain things like the discography of the Beatles and yeah. Fleetwood Mac. I always feel a bit guilty. I'm not sure if I do know the entire di- discography of Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> but certainly the Beatles. And we've talked about other things that are so ingrained in pop culture, like 1984 or Christmas Carol or Lord of the Rings. It doesn't matter if you've read them or even seen the films. Everybody kind of knows what they are. And I think it's the same with, uh, with, well, with detective fiction. It's obviously everyone knows Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Everyone knows Poirot too. Even if you've never read a single one of the books, everybody knows. You know um, that if, if if you're a detective, you have to put on a Belgian voice. And use, <laughs> My amazing powers of detection. And use the little grey cells. Everybody knows. So I don't know if I could. I mean, my mum is a huge Agatha Christie mm. fan. Um, so I guess the stories and the characters have always been in my life but I don't remember a time discovering these things mm. they seem so fundamental but I don't know do you remember discovering Christie? well like you I remember um, the TV series being on in the mm. 90s and that was a big part of it but more Miss Marple in the early days yeah. um, and I knew of the David Suchet Poirot but it was the TV adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express that was kind of my light bulb moment for Agatha Christie. Um, and I've got very fond memories of watching it for the first time with my mum. And it really is quite an astounding portrayal, the TV episodes of Murder on the Orient Express. It, it is, for all intents and purposes, a film. It's two hours long. Um, and it is not just one of the finest adaptations of Agatha Christie and Poirot, in my opinion, but one of the finest TV adaptations of a book I've ever seen. It, wow. I love it. And I won't talk too much about that now because I imagine we'll go on to talk specifically about the content of that episode when we talk about adaptations. Okay, yeah. We but watching that episode with my mum, I think it was 2004, was my light bulb moment. And that was sufficient to get me into the TV series and kind of pique my interest wow. for that. And it probably developed around about the time of sort of a general love of TV cosy crime, mm. Murder, She Wrote being the other notable one, which I've loved since being a teenager. Yeah. Sadly, there are no Murder, She Wrote novels. I mean, I'm saying that out loud, there probably are, actually, but uh, I probably have to twist <laughs> your arm somewhat to convince to, to do that. Universe. Yeah. <laughs> and fan fiction, I'm sure. Yeah. But, um, Murder, I wrote. <laughs> Murder, we wrote. Yeah. Collective band. <laughs> 
But um, I don't think I read one of the Christie books until, I guess, 2013, maybe. Um, or maybe that a, recently? No, maybe a little sooner than that, actually. Maybe, they kind of accompanied when I started going across to Europe a lot by mm. train. Um, and that was around about 2009, so maybe it is a little bit sooner than that. But they're the perfect novels to take on holiday with you, because... A lot of the editions that were published up until the 90s come in quite slim volumes with tiny text yes. that you need a magnifying yeah. glass for. Don't you send off for a special <laughs> yes. Poirot magnifying glass? Yes, you do, yeah. <laughs> and um, they come in nice little slim paperbacks, often with quite interesting elaborate artwork on the front. Um, some of it quite bizarre and psychedelic, <laughs> but maybe we'll go into yeah. that in a bit as well. And um, they're the perfect thing to stash into a rucksack when you're going away because they're so tiny and sort of portable, but the text is so small, so they give you something nice and yes. juicy to read. Yeah. And I'd always had this preconception that Agatha Christie might be a little bit too lofty for me <laughs> when I was younger, but actually they're quite pulpy. They're very pacey, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are. She is to detective fiction, I think, what Terence Dix is yeah. to Doctor Who. I mean, they've got a lot in common with Target books. Mm, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at... Um, the Murder of Roger Ackroyd, another Christie book oh. that I've got just to hand, but I'm also looking at a pile of Doctor Who Target books ah, yeah. over there. And they're very much in the same format with yeah. the slim volumes yeah. with the elaborate painted covers. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, there's a, a lot of cross appeal, I think. Massively. Mm. And I think and covers that are designed to make you want to read the book, despite you know, yeah. the to the contrary. They're kind of juicy. And I don't particularly know what's happening on this cover of Murder <laughs> of Roger Ackroyd. It, maybe we'll post it on Instagram. It's the Fontana edition. Is that a, and a ghost? Or, well, or is it a curtain? Or... I think it's a knife tearing a curtain, but the curtain is a very bizarre shape. <laughs> and I think he also did one for Orient Express, but a lot of the 1970s ah. Agatha Christie covers are painted by Tom Adams, um, who did a whole series of Agatha Christie-themed artwork. So I don't know what the one is for Orient Express, because I think the version I've got is to do with the 70s American mm. film and it has a picture of the cast on the front. Ah, but I, see. I should seek out the Tom Adams one because he's kind of the classic Christie artist. Yeah. Was it, well, the, the edition of Orient Express I have here today is a gorgeous uh, hardback mm, edition. It's beautiful. It's the, for, for all the collectors out there, it's the 1976 Heron Books edition. Mm. And it's a double volume uh, with, funnily, uh, uh, a murder is announced, uh, and it's got some really quite psychedelic illustrations <laughs> yes, that we were discussing mm. before we hit record. Mm. That um, the illustrations are by uh, Andre Nicholas Suter, I think that's, and uh, Tina Mercy, and I don't, I, I'm not sure the artist's name, but something about the style of them really reminds me of one of my favourite, uh, visually one of my favourite books of all time, mm. The Beatles Illustrated. Yes. Oh, you yeah, we were talking the... about that. I've, I've just found a picture of the Tom Adams cover to the... Oh, I... it's a map. How yeah, wonderful. a map with a compass on top and um, a... I'm guessing that's the pipe cleaner yes. that they talk about yeah. uh, for Colonel Arbuthnot's pipe and a match that's spent. Yeah. I'm and sure a burnt that... fragment of the note that they find in the oh, fireplace. Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is quite a literal one. It's it. You look at this and you know where you stand, yeah. whereas the Roger Ackroyd <laughs> one, I'm still looking at it, scratching my head, <laughs> what? thinking, what is this supposed to be representing uh, with all its bizarre scales? And, uh, and, and of course, there's one with a giant wasp on. Oh, <laughs> a wasp that's bigger than an aeroplane, yeah. That's Death in the Clouds, one of my favourites. Um, 
Yeah, the on the sort of title page uh, to my Heron Books edition, there's. I've just realised this is supposed to be Poirot. Yes. He's bald. Poirot's not bald, is he? <laughs> or maybe he is. Well, he's, he's got a head like an egg. It often says. Yeah. So. I, t- I I assume that yeah, his forehead. But I, I'm he's, just I've superimposed David Suchet holding a giant magnifying glass Massive, bigger than yeah, his head. <laughs> yeah, and the train is approaching through the magnifying glass. It's and there's a bit of an, a bit of artistic license taken. With this, but it's wonderful. It often makes you wonder what they were taking when they were doing these. uh, (laughs) Well, it was was the 70s. Um, (laughs) But also, as well as the gloriously bizarre illustrations, there, let me just find the right page now. There are some wonderful maps. Yeah, this was something quite common in Christie's coach. Yeah. And there's, um, I have to post a picture of this on our Instagram. Uh, It's got a map of the carriage with the names of all the guests like there's uh masterman foscarelli hector mcqueen hildegard schmidt oh wonderful and we were talking earlier about which passage to read it was an obvious one the passage the murderer murder is on the train but it's not uh, you know since what you were saying about agatha christie not really being um what lofty lofty yeah um it, they're not, you know, they're not the most sort of literary books in terms of you pick a beautiful, like some books we read a passage from because it's it really moves us or mm. is beautifully put together. Mm. And passage that's not, de fantastic. <laughs> that's not what these books are. Mm. But what they really feel like, even their whole swathes where it's just like lists of alibis yes. or facts. And, and it really, obviously, you know, Poirot is, is the protagonist, but what they do, and I think they do so well, is that the reader is the detective. Yeah, he literally yeah. gives you a map of the train. It tells you what was where, and it's almost like it. it of course, it's a book and it's a gripping page turner, but it's also like a game. It's like yeah, a, it's like Cluedo. It is. It is mm. Cluedo, and it gives. And like we were flicking through Roger Ackroyd, and there's a map in there, yeah. and there are pictures of all sorts. And it's like it, it literally providing you with the clues to piece it all together. Mm. And I think that's so that's so cool because people love detective stories, and people love a love a good murder. Mm, they do, especially a cozy one. Yeah, and that's, it's kind of and sort of contradictory phrase cozy crime because it often involves somebody being stabbed to death (laughs) or being poisoned or shot and yet there is something kind of warm and cozy about it in much the same way you know we were talking about cozy horror films Mm -hmm. last night how you can have something that's kind of glacial and industrial and bleak to look at on the screen and all it seems to do is enhance the warmth of you in your living room watching it yeah and i think it's much the same thing when you're watching Midsummer Murders or Murder, She Wrote or Columbo or reading Christie or Sherlock Holmes, they there is a sort of intrinsic warmth to them. <laughs> Why is that? Is it just the satisfaction of working out how it was done, like, like a magic trick? Or is there something... I, we talk a lot about Twin Peaks on this podcast, mm. which is strange because this is a book podcast. But And we talk about that kind of duality of, of light and dark. Mm. And something like the original Twin Peaks series is so incredibly cozy and twee with its cherry pie and yet horrifically violent and terrifying simultaneously. Mm. And, and there's something about, we've talked a lot about... Um, and on our Lord of the Rings episode, we talked about like the, the concept of peripheral threat, like the coziness of the hobbits in the Shire, but there are scary things in the woods on the borders. And Murder on the Orient Express is very much like that. There's something cozy about being, uh, you know, in your own little private yeah. cabin on a train. But but then that's somehow contextualized by the fact that there's a threat and some, there's something exciting about it. There's a murderer on the train. I think um, I, I've used sleeper trains quite a few times across Europe and... There is something quite uncanny about them that you 
there are various ways you can stay on them. And I might have talked about this on the podcast before. You have the kind of basic ones where you basically just have a seat and mm. hope beyond hope that you can get some sleep <laughs> set up, which is almost impossible. And then there are ones that are like bunk rooms, like a youth hostel on a train, yeah. where you're sharing with about four to eight other people as brilliantly dramatised in like Couchette in, in the Inside Number <laughs> 9 episodes. And then there are ones where it's literally like a hotel room and you've got a private room on a yeah. train. Um, and I've stayed in all of them. And the ones that are in a hotel room, like the ones on the Orient Express, there is something quite uncanny about them that you're essentially in a private bedroom for yourself but everything's kind of been designed functionally to kind of fit in a vehicle that could travel up to 120 miles an hour <laughs> and not make you feel displaced or uncomfortable about that. And so I think there is something sort of fundamentally both homely and unsettling yes, about yeah. the idea of hotel rooms on sleeper trains. Mm. You're never going to get the best night's sleep on them. And if you use one of the kind of showers that they have where you're literally kind of swinging as the train moves with it, <laughs> it's not like having a homely shower at home. But they're associated with luxury. And certainly in the day of Orient Express, all the people travelling on this coach or all the people that would be expected to travel mm. on this coach would be rich. Yes. And it's a kind of privilege yes. of the rich. Um, but there is a sort of sense of being displaced that I think lends itself quite well both to coziness and mm. to murder. And then the idea that the train is trapped on a snowdrift mm. as well. Now, if you love trains like I yes. do, the idea of being trapped on a train <laughs> feels quite romantic and mysterious. Of course, the reality of being trapped on a train would probably mean smelly toilets, running out of food <laughs> and warm bottled water being passed around by an increasingly frustrated crew. And maybe murder. And maybe murder, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if it was northern trains, then you know, the frustration <laughs> levels rise enough, then yes. Well, obviously, when was this published? 1933? Well, I thought it was 34, but maybe I think... A long time ago. Let's have a look in the um, jacket of the book. The yeah. secret shall be revealed. Yeah, well... We can detect it. <laughs> Use the little grey cells. Mm -hmm. um, my point being... Ah, the dedication is 1933. Maybe that's published what, uh, in 1934. That's why I was thinking that. Um, so we often on this podcast, talk about books that have been around for a long time. Mm. And we assume that people have read them and we don't really worry about spoilers. Mm. Um, we're not going to do that today. However, however, even though it's nearly 100 years old, spoiler warning, <laughs> if you haven't read the book or seen the film, um, maybe go away and, and do that. Because the the joy of these stories is working out who done it. They always have great and twists. And you know, you really you have to go in not knowing, mm. I think. And it's it's awful to spoil them. And a good example of that is the mouse trap, the yeah. Christie play um that's been running in indefinitely. That's I think it, is it the longest running theatre production yes, in yeah. the world? It, it was paused for COVID, but mm. then everything was but it's still yeah. basically it was first on in was it the forties? Whenever it was first on, and it's never stopped running. and it's great it as well it's wonderful. fabulously camp it's wonderful i love it yeah. so much i saw it at the blackpool grand with my yeah. mom a few years ago i saw it uh, at the theater in london oh. that it's been running at and um i uh yeah i went in mercifully not knowing who the murderer was mm. and it's wonderful as you know at the end the cast will come out on stage and say the reason this has been running for so long is because of the joy yeah. of people not knowing who the murderer is and, and, and trying to work it out themselves and the, and the, and the surprise of finding out who done it. Uh, and they, there's a kind of impassioned plea, like, you know, please do not tell anybody how this story ends. Um, 
and there was a, a controversy a few years ago. I don't know if you know, on Wikipedia, in the mm. summary of the plot of The Mousetrap, it, it reveals the ending. How could they? Yeah, and it's so odd because, because you know how what Wikipedia is like, as part of the information, it, it even says that the, the Agatha Christie estate were mm. quite upset and tried to have it taken down. So it's very bizarre to read that sort of impartially on Wikipedia itself, even though it's about a Wikipedia controversy. But they insisted, well, no, it's, you know, it's, um, what's, the, what's the word? It's not in the public domain, is it? Or, or maybe it is by now. But the, but the idea is culture and it's mm. not, they, they saw no reason to, um, to not include the full synopsis. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a real shame. Yeah, I just think it, is. it shouldn't be out there. I mean, by the same token, um, we were talking about the murder of Roger Ackroyd, mm. which shockingly I've never read because I kind of did a whirlwind tour oh, yeah. of probably about half of the Poirots. Um, and I guess it was COVID that knocked me off course with it because I always uh, read them when I go on holiday and weren't able to go yeah. on holiday. So I was uh, going through a couple of weeks ago looking at all the ones I haven't read um, and looking at kind of what the classics are that I've not read. And mm. The Murder of Roger Ackroyd was by far the highest rated. Ah. But I read a little bit about it and it said the twist at the end is just mind-blowing and nobody would see it coming. And at that point, I closed that tab oh, on my, my phone. Yeah. I thought you were going to spoiled it. For I me. didn't want to know a single thing more about it. So I'm so excited. Now, now you know there's a twist. Well, <laughs> Who saw that coming? Shocker. <laughs> but in a couple of weeks, I'm um, getting a train down through France and then walking uh, over the Pyrenees in Spain. Um, and... I've got the murder of Roger Ockroyd to accompany me Fantastic. because they're the best travel books. And I'm so excited to dive into this world and, oh, yeah. and not to know what the twist is. Um, so maybe there will be a sequel episode to this where we talk about Roger Ackroyd. I don't know, but I will report back to yes, you. Yes, yeah. I want to read The Halloween Party. Yeah, I've never read that. And mm. I think there's a new film coming out ah, next month it's, even. Is it, it's, they've, they've, they've changed, changed the, the title. Set, yeah, and but, the setting. Oh, really? Because it's not in Venice in the book. Oh, right, because what's the, what's the name of the film? Some a Venice Carnival. A Haunting in Venice? Haunting in Venice, yeah. that's it. But um, yeah, I want to know how it compares. So I'm going to read the book before I see the film, but I will definitely do both. I think the I think the book is set in an English country house. That um, sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, it, it kind of brings me on one thing I find interesting about Poirot, and it's a bit of a difference to the TV series. In the TV series, it makes quite a thing of Poirot's London residence, and it shows his yeah. um, Art Deco house. And it's a, a really wonderful setting. And London is quite a feature in mm. the TV series. But even though Poirot is resident in London, so few of the books actually mm. take place in London. I think... Um, a BBC budgetary thing, do you think? Possibly, yeah. <laughs> I think um, I think one, two book called My Shoe Might. And I think... Um, I can't remember if they actually... It's had several titles, but Hickory Dickory Death. <laughs> if, if indeed that was the final title that was published under is set in London. Uh, but a lot of them are either set in English country houses or they are set in travel locations. Mm -hmm. so, so this is one. Poirot's travelling from Istanbul yes, yeah. to Calais yeah. on the Orient Express. Um and maybe this is as good a time as any to kind of do a summary of what the setup is. For yeah, the book. I just as a small tangent, I was very disappointed at whatever age I was to find out that there was no singular Orient Express. Oh no, it's uh, <laughs> it's like Trans Pennine Express or something. Uh, no, it's uh, a collection of services. But still, but... I do like to believe that there is an Orient Express, a definitive, one. and we're on it now, <laughs> having <laughs> yes. breakfast yeah. and Cumberland tea. <laughs> but yeah, do you want to give a? a a brief summary of the plot, um, but then we'll, we'll get into spoilers as well. 
So, yeah. yeah. So th- this you, is this is your warning. You've had your four-minute warning. This is your thirty-second yeah. warning. Um, so Poirot uh, begins the book in Istanbul, mm-hmm. I believe. Is it Istanbul? Istanbul. I they love say. that <laughs> apostrophe before that. Yeah. And, and I look, Mark Gatiss uses that in the loose. Oh yes, I love, okay. Yeah. Chief. I love uh-huh. anything like that. <laughs> and I don't think we know why he's been in Istanbul. Um, Detecting. Yes, <laughs> I, I always think there's sort of, sort of missed opportunities there for the kind of. You know, there could have been a short story that's set before that. Uh, well, maybe Sophie Hanna will write it. Well, that's a point. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's something to talk about. Yeah, um, that later. But he um, he's going to take a lengthy journey back to the UK uh, via so Constantinople <laughs> and Calais. Yeah. Um, but when he gets to his first destination, I think it is Constantinople. Yes. Yeah. He's in his hotel and he gets a telegram that he must return home urgently mm. for reasons that are unspecified. Again, Sophie Hannah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. But like we said, that they're always quite the, short the, on the background this, detail. This they're the all about the crime. You know, yeah. uh, what was um, Ratatat prose? I think. Yeah. <laughs> Just get to the get to the action. Mm. It's great. So he's travelling and he overhears a conversation between two of the main characters that were introduced to Mary mm. Debenham and Colonel Abuthnot, is it, at yeah, that point? Yeah, I think that's, yeah. And they seem to have a kind of frisson between them mm. um, and they're talking in hushed tones about yes. something that Poirot picks up on and uh, seems to think it's a little bit suspicious, but uh, it's not lingered on at that point. But then as they all board the train and were introduced to various characters, uh, including the two we've already mentioned, and about 15 others, it's quite a large there cast. There is a, this, a large cast, um, yeah. Which is significant to the plot. Yes, yeah. Um, they eventually hit a snowdrift, and during the night, whilst the train is stranded, Poirot is awoken a few times, yeah, firstly yeah. hearing something coming from the... Somewhat comedic American character, <laughs> Mrs. Hubbard's carriage. What do you mean comedic? <laughs> Actually, that was a bit uh, Miss Piggy, wasn't it? <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was like Miss Piggy or a high-pitched Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> um, Winnie the Pig. <laughs> <laughs> We've just been listening to an audio book, which again we'll come to yeah. uh, of Orient Express, read by David Suchet, and his uh, voice, the Mrs. Hubbard, is <laughs> wonderful. the best yeah. narration I've ever heard in my life. But he's, he's woken firstly by a, a commotion from Mrs. Mm. Hubbard's carriage, and then he's awoken by uh, sounds from the corridor, and he, he pops his head out and mm. seems to see somebody hurrying past. Yes. But then he goes back to sleep and isn't aware until the morning that there has been a murder. Now, the murder is of an American chap. Ooh, just a book before that, uh, mm. the American chap, um, Ratchet. Oh, well, well, or is yes. he? Mm. Um, but he calls himself Ratchet. He believes that somebody is attempting to kill him, mm. and he offers Poirot what is it twenty thousand pounds, pounds to protect him? Yeah, mm. which Poirot refuses mm. because he doesn't like his face. Yes, I love that. Yeah. It's, the, it's the end of the chapter, isn't it? It's really abrupt. Yeah. Right? I do not like your face. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had the brass neck to be that yes. forthright with people. Yeah. <laughs> but sorry, yes. Yeah, so, but then uh, Ratchet, as he calls himself, is found uh, murdered. murdered, and. Uh, not just from a single wound, he's been stabbed 12, 12 times. times. So it seems to be a, a crime of passion because it appears that whoever has stabbed him has stabbed him haphazardly and repeatedly and the <laughs> wounds appear a little bit inconsistent from each other. <laughs> and there's several strange details around it, like a watch that's stopped that's found in his pyjama pocket yep. and uh, a handkerchief that's found with the letter H on it <laughs> and a pipe cleaner as well. Um, so... 
as well as Poirot, there is a French police officer, Monsieur yeah, Bouc, yeah. travelling on the same train, and he asks if Poirot will assist him mm. solving the case. And, and also he says, a doc- no, I don't like your face. <laughs> <laughs> He's a bit crotchety. <laughs> no, he says that he will yeah. oblige, which was the bit we read at the start. Yes. And they're assisted by a doctor, Dr. Constantine, Constantine yeah. uh, who's on the train as well, who can confirm the time of mm-hmm. death and kind of it's becomes very convenient. the third part of the <laughs> yeah. triumvirate Ooh, solving I this like crime. That. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's the kind of setup. Yeah, so seriously, we've warned you. We've warned you. Yes, well, are, are we going to discuss the denouement? I think we have to. Mm. They all did it. Yeah. They but, all murdered him. And well, no, no, not quite all well, of them. No, no, sorry. Not, yeah. They were all in on it. Well, yeah. apart from the triumvirate. But um, see, not only was Ratchet lying about his true identity, because his mm. real name is Cosetti, mm. uh, everybody is lying about their, well, more or less lying about their true identity. And they formed a jury of sorts to exact revenge for a terrible crime. Yes, because Cosetti used to run a, a kidnap ring uh, that... It's quite dark, it's actually. It's very dark. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got elements of, like, you know, he child murders abuse. a three-year-old child. Yeah. yeah. Cassetti has been stealing, kidnapping mm. children from rich families, charging them a ransom, but they're murdering the children anyway. It's really horrific, quite horrific. Really and horrific. You wonder what led Christie to come to well, that I plot. Think but it, it is suitably dark to justify the actions, it's I It's exactly that. And yeah. I think, it's a, it, on the one hand, like it, this is textbook Christie in the sense that we have, like... Um, either a remote location or they're, they're all trapped here and one of them is the killer and everyone's got a motive and everyone's suspect and here is a, a clue and here's a murder weapon. And on the one hand, the first time ever to do, actually it was all of them, mm. is a real mind-blowing twist. It's a shocker. But it, it's sometimes a big twist can come at the sake of the story and just because something's shocking it doesn't necessarily make it good and mm. I think so to justify I'd also that would be quite what does Poirot as the you know in inverted commas good guy do with the mm. fact that everybody's committed a terrible crime I think the only way to justify it and make the audience well we'll get to the ending later but I think to get the audience on side this guy has to be the absolute worst where you think yeah he deserved yeah. to die yeah. and I think it had to be that serious a crime if it had been you know a sort of crime of if he'd been having an affair been in love with someone or stolen some jewels you'd think I mean come on stabbing him 12 times yeah. but this it's kind of you think yeah absolutely fine mm. Cassetti had to die yes <laughs> He is the lowest of the low and yeah. absolutely reprehensible. And in, so it is entirely justified why Poirot does not like his face. Yes. Because Poirot is he, an expert reader of he people. He knows, yeah. Yeah, oh. wonderful. Yeah. Uh, right, well, we've run out of tea. So should we go to the buffet cart and uh, get another pot? I think that's a grand idea. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. So what do you make of the Cumberland tea, then? It almost reminds me of Earl Grey. It has a slightly uh, floral mm. quality to it, which is strange because I don't think there is bergamot in this. It has a bouquet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's nice. It's a nice kind of refreshing, uplifting breakfast tea experience. Mm. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I have very simple taste when it comes to tea, and I like a good strong builder's tea. Mm. And I was a bit disappointed actually when I saw that they actually had builder's tea, just standard builders on the menu, and I neglected to order it. Mm. I do love Yorkshire tea, as you know. And I feel guilty, as a, a you know a born and bred Lancastrian, uh, that I don't drink Lancashire tea, mm. which I think started about maybe twenty years ago now. It's yeah. a blatant rivalry of Yorkshire tea, and I do like it. I'm not sure I, I do. To, I want to condition myself to prefer it, mm. and I love their packaging. Really, mm. kind of charming. It's lovely. Obviously. It's got Blackpool Tower on it, and Williamson. Well, the Ashton Memorial in Lancaster, and um, what else is on there? 
Darwin Tower, I feel. Is it? Somewhere. Right. All manner of wonderful Lancashire yeah. things. But we're not in Lancashire. We're in... Uh, well, where are we these days? We're in Istanbul. No, we're not. <laughs> we're in uh, Constantinople. No. Well, we're in Bassenthwaite. <laughs> oh, yeah we're, yeah, we're at Bassenthwaite Station. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just to clarify, there is no Bassenthwaite Station. Not anymore. Not anymore, no, sadly. <laughs> but uh, there's a bit of railway track here yeah. at, the, at the cafe. It was a railway line at one was, point. Yeah, there used yeah. to be a railway line running all the way from Penrith to Workington, which has sadly been decommissioned now. But there's lovely walks and, indeed, this cafe to compensate for that. There's a nature reserve just by here, actually. Mm. I feel like I'm being sponsored by Bassenthwaite uh, Station Cafe. Well, it's a lovely place, and we do want to support it. Yeah, so. yeah, but come and visit. Yeah. Buy a candle, buy mm. some Cumberland tea. Buy a pencil sharpener in the shape of the train. <laughs> we need to get... A, I like to have a mug for, you know, thematically appropriate mugs for each episode. Like, we've got mm. Doctor Who mug and uh, um, 1984 mug and uh, Hobbit mug. But um, I need to get a Bassenthwaite Station mug. I Your think. dad has one. Oh, does he? Yes. All oh, right. right. <laughs> dad, can I bring him up? <laughs> so, talking of uh, all things English, um, <laughs> this is a multinational cast, the yes. Orient Express. Um, I'm trying to think. It, now, there are a few English characters because Mary Debenham is yes. English. Yeah. Um, but somebody we've not touched on yet is um, Ratchet or Cassetti, the yeah, uh, victim, yeah, yeah. if you want to call him that, because he has a bit of a. A one, a bit of the yeah. devil. The, the, um, his valet, yeah. uh, Masterman. And one of the things we were talking about in the tea break is um, there's a sort of... Um, I don't think... Uh, I know there's been talk recently about re-editing some of the Christie books um, to bring them more in line with current values. And I don't think Christie does really show many signs of racism. Yeah, I think not she's not quite... No, far from We it. talked a lot about this in our Devil Rides yeah. episode, if you want to listen to that, another 30s book. I think she's quite racially progressive, but she can't help but talk with the... It was written in the, the 30s. The, the sort yeah. of tone of her time. And there does seem to be a kind of casual bias against Americans and various characters. <laughs> and we were just... Um, one particular passage um, is from Masterman when they're quizzing him after the body's been found about uh, his relationship with his employer. And um, Paro says, Had you an affection for your employer, Masterman? Masterman's face became, if possible, even more inexpressive than it was normally. I should hardly like to say that, sir. He was a generous employer. But you didn't like him. Shall we put it that I don't care very much for Americans, sir? Have you ever been in America? No, sir. It's the most English thing <laughs> yes, I've ever it heard. Is, yeah. <laughs> but it also, we mentioned Mark Gatiss earlier mm. and his kind of pastiche mm. of this era of, of detective fiction with his Lucifer Box mm. novels. It reminds me the very beginning of uh, the, the Devil at Amber, mm. first sentence of that book with the the, dev- uh, the gentleman was an American, so it felt only right to shoot him. Yes, of course. <laughs> I've forgotten about that. <laughs> but, um, and we were also debating before we recorded the pronunciation of the word. Valet or valet. valet. I thought valet. it was valet, but yeah. um, we, we went to the audiobook and David Suchet says valet, so mm. you know, I'll defer to David on this occasion, but <laughs> I thought it was valet. <laughs> mm. Answers on a postcard. <laughs> Book at breakfast, courtesy of Bass and Sweet Station. I'm sure we'll be back. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we'll be back. <laughs> so, as we're discussing uh, the victim, if we'll call him that, mm. valet or valet, uh, maybe now it's a good time to talk about some of the notable characters. Yes. Um, it's interesting. I was reading something. In fact, was it Neil Gaiman? Um, 
talking about uh, giving characters silly hats, mm. metaphorically. We've probably talked about this on the podcast before. Like, especially when you have a large cast of characters, uh, it can be overwhelming for the reader initially to keep track of who's who. And we were only discussing last night, actually, how it's great to have, um, with certain books, to have a cast of characters. Yeah, on the, a cast on the first list. Page. Yeah. Um, Big fan of that. But, um, but there's that idea of you know, giving people kind of exaggerated characteristics, not literally a silly hat, but, uh, you know... In Doctor Who, it might literally be a silly hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what I, I think what Christie has done with this, because it's such a varied cast, that the, the characters' nationalities are their yeah. quote unquote silly hats in the sense that, ah, it's the Italian man. The Italian uh, chauffeur. Chauffeur, yeah. Is quite sort of brash and loud, yeah, but warm yeah. with it as well. Yeah, and then there's, um, we've talked about Mrs. Hubbard before. Co- Mrs. Hubbard. <laughs> co- comedic American. Yeah. Although, um, again, we've, we've already, you know, we've already gone spoilers and we've discovered at the end that actually she's an actress mm. uh, and she is putting on, not, she is American, mm. she? but she's but she's putting on a bit of a hysterical act. Um, so that's quite, that's why Mrs. Hubbard is, is so ridiculous. And I don't but, think Christie would be one to have a hysterical woman for no. the sake of it. I think, you know, compared to her male contemporaries, she's quite progressive with her oh, female roles. And so, I think yeah. Mary Debenham is a really good female character. Yeah, yeah, she's, yeah. she's quite cool and headstrong and intelligent. Mm-hmm. And she does break down towards the end, but... It's an in emotionally heightened part of you the know, book, yeah. When you especially find out given against the that background, they're all connected to the family mm. who were murdered, and yeah. I think one of yeah. the reasons I like Christie as an example of writing crime fiction from her era is because the female characters aren't two dimensional. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I hope this isn't too controversial to say, especially on a podcast about uh, murder on the Orient Express. But I was always a fan of Marple over Poirot. I'm, mm. I'm afraid to say that is interesting and. Maybe this is one we can touch on in the future mm. because I I liked the Marple TV series, but I don't like the books as much yeah. because Marple tends to stay at home and work on a garden and yeah. people bring the facts to her. And I struggle with the kind of passiveness of them a little <laughs> bit, whereas I like the kind of power ones because he's generally in the heat of the crime. Just and, I've, my... I've just written a new book in which there is an old woman character <laughs> who always stays in a yeah. house and people bring their problems to her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really saying yeah. this out loud now. <laughs> but you have another character who goes he out goes and out in the thick yeah, of the yeah, adventures. Yeah, yeah. And if we're talking about female detectives in Christie, she introduced Ariadne Oliver later, um, who was in a lot of the Poirot novels. Of course, and yeah. indeed kind of became a protagonist in her own right, mm. with Poirot guesting in the Ariadne Oliver books. Um, so I would prefer that character, because she kind of gets into the thick of the mystery. And Whereas, I don't know, maybe I will appreciate the more sedentary nature of the Marple books when I get a little bit older. Yeah, mm. pottering about in your garden. Yes, exactly, yeah. Oh, my favourite Agatha Christie book is that is um, The Pale Horse. Which I've not read. No, mm. and it's neither. Um mm. Uh, and it, but it's it's about witchcraft, of course. Ah, right, spooky. okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I, maybe if you do read it, that could be a future Halloween episode. Mm, yes, I really, I could not put that down. Right. And, oh, good. And there was a TV. There's a BBC adaptation of it a few years ago, and I was quite mm. let down by it. It didn't oh. quite capture the tone. But anyway, we're not here to talk about uh, Pale Horse mm. yet. So we we were talking just in the break about Poirot's uh, fussiness and you had an interesting point about his OCD and the kind of um the relationship to i mean it it's kind of almost a cliche these days that detectives have some sort of like flaw <laughs> or personality disorder or something that that makes them difficult to be around but brilliantly gifted in the field of solving crime and 
I don't know if Poirot and Sherlock Holmes were early examples mm. of that, but I think they were inventing the cliches. Yeah, I read, I don't know if this is true, but I read a thing recently saying that um, basically because Christie wanted to create a detective character, but, you know, um, the world's famous detective was, of course, Batman, <laughs> uh, Sherlock Holmes, um, that she, like, deliberately set out to make him as different as possible mm. to Sybil because Sherlock Holmes is English, so Poirot will be Belgian. And <laughs> Sherlock Holmes is tall, so Poirot will be short. Mm. Sherlock was clean-shaven, so mm. Poirot would have a moustache, mm. um, which I thought was interesting mm. in a way. But, we would, we, yeah, we were discussing about his, his character um, and how he's kind of OCD. Mm. And I was saying that, um, to me, it almost feels like his, his superpower, if you can kind of explain it, is that... He's so particular and everything must be just so and he likes everything very ordered that when he sees anything that's that that's disordered, his brain sort of can't rest mm. in sort of wanting to put things back together. And in the sense of a crime scene, if he sees one tiny thing out of place, it's almost his obsessiveness that, yes. that makes him think, no, that isn't right. That shouldn't be there. Where should it be? It must have come from this, which must mean, and therefore, ah, you are the killer. And I, I find that actually really interesting. One of the bits that I find slightly at odds with that is early on in the book when they're on the Taurus Express before mm. they join the Orient Express because they're getting a connecting train up to Constantinople and Mary Debenham is really worried when the train stops for 10 minutes <laughs> yes, and it's delayed. Yes, bit you mean. And Pryor's questioning why she's so worried because <laughs> he obviously suspects something but it seems at odds with his character because yeah. he is somebody that is so fussy and particularly mm. you think he would be the one uh, that would be incredibly frustrated yeah, and nervous it's... about the potential of missing a connection. <laughs> but no, just but get the next train. <laughs> it made me think about the privilege of the rich mm. uh, who could idle about and yes. kind of go from place to place in a kind of permanent state of leisure without having to be anywhere in particular. And Mary Debenham, um, I think she is... What's the official term for it? She's a kind of ladies' assistant. Um, and it there is a word for that, but I in the forget. Book. So I don't imagine she is as rich. I think she's somebody that essentially mm. is a servant that helps kind of rich yeah. ladies uh, sort of book their travel and carry their cases and things like that. Mm. And I thought it was an interesting... A valet. <laughs> I <laughs> no, suppose, okay. Yeah, I guess, I guess a valet or valet is the male equivalent. But I'm sure there is a word in Christie's day for the female equivalent. This is going to drive me crazy now. <laughs> I think it is interesting that I think anyone who we've stood a chance of missing their train connection, whether it was in 1934 or whether it was now, would be mm. reasonably stressed. Yeah, I mean, and it's the a fact day, that day, so, day occurrence the, in the north of England it is, at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact Poirot's so cool about it struck me as odd. Well, he's also retired at the moment, isn't he? So yes, he, he is. He doesn't really have anywhere to be. Yes, uh, I guess. So he's, <laughs> he's idling at his yeah. own leisure. Thankfully, it's not something we have to worry about on this train carriage because uh, <laughs> we, although we are we, on the Orient Express, it is static. We've been still for quite some time. We have, yes. Are you yeah. concerned? Are you worried about missing yeah, the connection? Yeah, well, I think that the murderer snuck on whilst mm. we were stationary and then ran off. <laughs> okay, I, I, yeah. don't, I don't think it was anyone on the train mm. that did the murder. Well, I hope not, otherwise <laughs> we're in foul company and we must hurry away. So with that in mind, maybe we should move to our denouement yes. and... Uh, conclude things by talking about adaptations of the Orient yeah, Express. Yeah, well, just before we get onto that, or rather to kind of to segue, because I know what you're going to say, mm. <laughs> um, is that I just wanted to talk briefly about the ending. Mm. So, of course, Poirot, being uh, you know a super sleuth, works out that they were all more or less responsible for the murder because they're all connected mm. in some way to the Armstrong family. Uh, but... Um, 
what's the what's the name of the final chapter? It's something uh, Poirot uh, propounds propound two, two solutions, solutions yes. which is very very cool. And one, mm. as as I joked about earlier, is that um, whilst the train was stationary, an unknown assailant stuck on board, uh, stabbed Cassetti <laughs> twelve times, and then escaped, uh, which of course is nonsense. Mm. Uh, and the the second solution is that in fact it was all of them, and it was uh, you know it was revenge. Uh, they were there's a, there are numerous comments on there about them basically being the jury yeah. and the executioner. The jury is of, made of twelve people, yeah, so they assemble twelve people connected yes, yeah. with the family to exact revenge. Uh, but as we touched upon, it's a strange, you know, generally what happens in a detective story like this, a murder mystery, is that the murder murderer is is identified and brought to justice. Mm. Because murder is wrong. Mm. And yet, in this is a case so appalling that everybody knows that the guy basically deserved to mm. be murdered. And so uh, Poirot says to Michel Bouc at the end, well, here are my two solutions. Yeah. And everybody knows that they're all guilty and they all did mm. it. But uh, Michel Bouc says, I favour the first one. So basically, they, they get away with it. Because I think Poirot... Is he sympathetic or is he simply detached because of his cold reasoning? What What do you think? I, I think he's sympathetic to them. I think yeah. he is because I don't think he would give them the the other alternative solution. He essentially exactly. provides them with a get-out clause yes. in the book yeah. and then quite briskly ends by Very saying, bri- Then, Sir Poirot, having placed my solution before you, I have the honour to retire from the case. <laughs> that's like and a, the book ends. That's like an Alan Garner ending. <laughs> yes, it is. This yeah. was the murder on the Orient Express <laughs> and here is the end of it. Um, although th- there's an ambiguity because mm. that's just Poirot's opinion. Yes, yeah. and, you know, there is a police, police, police officer. He yeah. might say, no, we know these people mm. are all guilty of murder. Maybe they do get arrested mm. and tried but I don't think they do. Um, I, doesn't it say that Book agrees with the former solution? He, he does, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what I mean, if we don't literally know what happens next, but I think Book just takes that. And, yeah, well, not at face value because he knows too. Mm. But he thinks, yeah, I agree with you. Let's uh, let's turn a blind eye here, um, which is which is very interesting. Uh, I like it, uh, but then maybe so, you, you might not like the TV adaptation yeah. as much. So, so here's the controversial mm. um, confession. I haven't seen the David Suchet mm. TV version. It's so funny because I, I was reading that, imagining uh, David, Su- David Suchet mm-hmm. as Poirot, because, you know, he is. Um, and yet I've never seen him in this mm. story. Oh, it, it's a brilliant adaptation. Um, it does it so well and it's so atmospheric and it's got a brilliant score. It has this really simple string part, uh, but it's really kind of icy Ooh. and abrupt and it sounds like a knife being plunged into somebody, the, the string part. And it's just this little sting that keeps playing at oh, sort wow. of dramatic moments. So the, the you, music alone makes it worth it, but, but it is so, so well staged. So the ending is different then in the TV version? It is a little bit different. So I think, bearing in mind that the Poirot TV series started in, I think, 1989, it was mm. very long running. And they I was didn't... shocked that Orient Express came so late. Yeah, 15 years it, after it began. It almost so... feels like, was it unfinished business? Like, Because that, that is the most famous... Probably the most famous Christie novel, certainly the most famous Poirot story. Was it a case of, like, how have we not done this one? Well, I mean, it ran until about 2015. I'm not exact on that. but it, Oh, really? So it wasn't one of the last ones. But I think what they tended to do was originally it was a TV series of shorts. Yes. And they did a lot of the short stories. So that formed oh, the basis of right. the TV 
sort of series. And then what they started to do, a little like Only Fools and Horses, Specials. was move into specials. Right, and they right. come out on bank holidays, Christmas, Easter. Yeah. So Orient because Express it, was actually point, one of the first specials. Because it, mm. because the character and the actor playing him have become a national treasure. Yeah, it's absolutely and synonymous it, with the role. With holiday telly, we want to hunker down with our families and watch national treasures yeah, playing absolutely. beloved characters. So I think because they'd done so much character development, and I think so much of what Poirot is now is because of David Suchet, yes, who's almost yeah. taken Christie's source material mm. in much the same way that many fine actors have taken Conan Doyle's source yes, material yeah, for Sherlock yeah. Holmes and embellished it. I don't think they could quite have the same abrupt ending and the same Poirot that might detach himself from the case because Suchet's portrayal of him is more emotive and does mm. become more involved mm. in things. So what happens in the Suchet TV portrayal of the Orient Express is... Poirot doesn't offer two solutions. He only offers the one where oh. all of the characters have murdered. Um, right. Well, all of the characters apart from uh, the Countess Andrenyi, yeah. uh, who's innocent, yeah. have driven the knife into Cassetti's body. And he's furious about it. Ah, and he cannot cope with the idea that he's surrounded by 12 murderers that have lied ah. and played him through a fool. And he goes away to his compartment to think about it. But it's really tense because you feel like... All the characters could have it in for him now that he knows Ooh, this, God, and there's yeah. this kind of sense of him alone being against this. Uh, uh, this going to be another murder. Yeah, yes. Um, and then after a kind of really tense moment of deliberation, he comes out and he decides that he will not report it to the police uh, on his own count. Whether anyone else decides to is their own business. But he's furious about it, and he's so conflicted, and he's so he portrays it so well. This kind of Ethically, it sits wow. so badly with him because it, it does not go with his Moral morality code, yeah. to allow murder, even though he understands the justification yeah. for it, and he does not think this is the right way to resolve the issue. And he's kind of almost having a sort of breakdown in mm. front of them when he tells them this, and he's, wow. he's in bits about it. God, I wish it. I'd seen this. <laughs> and it's so tense. And then at the end, he, he says it's a kangaroo court. That's the mm. phrase he uses yeah, yeah, yeah. in the... TV one that I don't think is used in, no, in the book. It's a great phrase. Yeah. Um, and he goes out into the snow uh, and he's walking away from the train. And it's really sad. He, he walks away and he looks so broken, like this case has actually broken oh him. God. And he walks off into the snow and the music starts and it's... That's the end. It's really impactful, yeah. Um, so it's really quite a, a different way of ending the book and it certainly casts more judgment on the rest of the characters in the TV adaptation but it fleshes out Poirot as a much more rounded mm, mm. character and Suchet brings so much to wow. it. So it's really interesting hearing the audiobook adaptation <laughs> where Suchet reads Suchet, it yeah. faithfully. Yeah, yeah. Because well, you think, not... but, but you don't think this, you're, you're <laughs> curious at them. But... Well, what's, oh, no, just to go back to the book a second, that idea of, I said, is it detachment? But you feel like there's an element of, you know, on the one hand he's saying, yeah, well, here are my two solutions, make of them what you will and mm. I'm going now kind of thing. Um but also, do you think, because you know, really, you feel like he's throwing them a lifeline. Mm. And he's he's kind of um, offering them his reputation, I think. If they yes. say, hey, well, you know, yeah, true. The, the, the greatest detective in the world has mm. said that, that it was just some random guy. So it couldn't possibly be any yeah. of us. It's quite forgiving. And he must know that. He must mm. know that, oh, well, if the great Hercule Poirot, <laughs> uh, you know, has, has cleared you of this terrible crime, you can't have possibly done it. Where it's the complete opposite in, in the TV series. Now, I have seen the 2017 Kenneth Branagh 
version. Which I've not probably. Oh, you know, no, I, I've seen a bit of this on TV. I saw it at the cinema when it first came out. I've not seen it since. I don't massively remember it. Um, I enjoyed it. It wasn't mm. fantastic, but I, I enjoyed it very much. Um, he's slightly over the top with Poirot. <laughs> yes. But I wish you would it's expect. Fine. It's fine. It's Kenneth yeah, Branagh. It's Kenneth Branagh. Um, the moustache is ridiculous. But then, you know, he is a ridiculous character. Mm. And, and I appreciate when, you know, it's a bit like with Dracula, you know, when you've got someone as iconic as Bella Lugosi, like, how do you follow that? You have to be completely different. Mm. And, you know, get Christopher Lee and Gary Oldman. Mm. And, uh, but, uh, Nicolas Cage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, that's a bad example. Because he's, anyway, um, but I think if you're taking on an, an iconic character that's been kind of, or Hannibal Lecter by um, um, Anthony Hopkins, mm. and you get Mads Mikkelsen in the TV series, just doing something completely different with it. It's the only thing you can do. So whilst he's he's, he's no David Suchet, I think um, Kenneth Branagh is fine. Yeah, I think he's but great. I, do, I mean, we've seen Death on the Nile. Yeah, together, but, so. um, and I do remember the, uh, the the sort of deduction scene at, at the end, or rather. And it's a similar thing. I just remember everyone being at the end of the carriage and him yelling at them and mm. feeling very righteous. And I'd say it's, I haven't seen it since it came out, what, six years ago? So I may be slightly misremembering it, but I do remember there was more a sort of sense of moral judgment. But I don't remember there being a kind of conflict like you mm. describe. He didn't, certainly didn't seem broken. It was more just moral outrage. So it's um, almost kind of progressed through the mm, stages. The, yeah. the book adaptation is ambiguous. And yeah. You don't know... You know, Poirot throws them two options and kind of is quite forgiving and throws them a lifeline. Yeah. In the 2004 adaptation with David Suchet, he's conflicted, not only broken by it, and perhaps in the Kenneth Branagh one from 2017, he is furious about but it. Perhaps by the 2030 <laughs> adaptation, Poirot will be the murderer. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, that that's interesting because um, in Poirot's final case, Curtin, yeah. there is an element where he kind of gets involved in bringing about justice himself. So this does almost it foreshadow leads, that yeah, aspect of how, his personality. That's interesting. But, um, but back to adaptation. So that my introduction to this was actually the 70s film ah, with yes. Albert Finney yes. as Poirot. So I guess mm. that was my that was the first Poirot I saw. Mm. Uh, and I was, I was a child when I saw that, but I thought it was fantastic and really atmospheric. And, uh, and yet he was, you know... In my subconscious, he was eventually replaced by um, David Suchet as, as the ultimate Poirot. But that was my introduction to... And I remember the montage of showing each of their uh, the passengers' hands mm. sinking the knife in and it being really atmospheric and very cool. But I've not seen that in probably over 20 years. Have you seen it? I don't know if I've seen the film, um, but the book copy of Orient Express oh, said yeah, has yeah. a picture of the character <clears throat> of the front. And on the back... It's really good. It's got a picture of each actor in their role with their character name underneath, mm. which, given there are so many characters, kind of helps like, like yeah. separate them in my head as I got to know them. In that way, we were saying that it's great to have a kind of cast of characters list in a novel. And uh, we've talked about it already, but of course, the wonderful audiobook mm. narrated by. I know. I noticed that Kenneth Branagh has done an audiobook yeah, too. Yeah, I'd be interested to I, hear. I'd it. give it a listen, but I mean, I, and I think there's there's even another one by somebody. Who isn't uh, a Poirot actor? Dan but, I mean, Stevens, I think that was, was it. Yeah. Sorry, Dan, but like, why would you bother? I mean, you, I want, I want the David Suchet one. I'd like to. His all his, he, he does all the voices so well. Oh, he does brilliantly. Uh, Even I, Mrs. Hubbard, you know, uh, the, the caricature. <laughs> if you can accept that a caricature is part of the character because she's an actress, I love so. how she lies about. She says she heard um, 
Cassetti snoring or Ratchet snoring. Mm. Uh, and then she she said, oh, there was a woman in his room with him. And, yes. and, and Poirot's like, hang on, but you, why didn't you tell me that before? And she mm. makes out it's prudishness. She's like, mm. well, I don't want to think about such things going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, and I love it. His actual narration is wonderful, yes, too. Yes, it is. And it's, yeah. it's almost bizarre to hear him speaking in his natural English accent. Because he is Poirot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, he there's something almost like soporific about it. Like mm. he could be reading the football scores, yes. especially when he's listing the, the evidence. <laughs> he's like, you know, Bolton Wanderers won, <laughs> Istanbul nil. <laughs> it was we were saying that uh, when David Suchet was in um, uh, Doctor Who. Knock Knock. It was just surreal hearing him speaking <laughs> yeah. in his his actual accent because he's so synonymous with Poirot. Yeah, and I think. Um, He's done as much for the Poirot character as Christie did. And certainly for our generation, he will always be Poirot. Noble as Kenneth Branagh's yeah, yeah, portrayal yeah. is. Well, I wouldn't call it noble. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. I, I enjoy it. And I, yeah, I really enjoy Death on the Nile. Yeah, that, I, that's yeah. Actually, I think Death on the Nile is my favourite Poirot book. Oh, I love the book. Well, maybe we uh, should discuss that at some point. Yeah, yeah, I'd love this, to. This is my favourite Poirot book, yeah. Holmes Express. Um, uh, but talking of, you know, surely... We talk about Doctor Who. The ultimate adaptation of this book is the one where Peter Capaldi play, plays Poirot, and instead of uh, a jury of twelve passengers, it's um, a murderous mummy. Uh, yes. But it's basically the same story. It is, yeah, <laughs> Mummy on the Orient Express. <laughs> I remember when I saw the title, I thought, I thought this is going to be really silly, mm. and objectively it is. But I think it's fantastic. It's, it's one of the best episodes that season. Well. It is properly yeah. scary. It's fantastic. Um, and again, uh, we we mentioned death in the clouds. We didn't. We've done really well. We didn't uh, just devolve into talking about the unicorn and, and the wasp, mm-hmm. which is a Doctor Who episode uh, in which Agatha Christie herself is a character, yes. and she's played wonderfully. And I've forgotten the actress's name. She was in Sherlock. Uh, not sure. She was in Jekyll. She was in all sorts around that time. Fenella Wolgar. Yeah. That's her. Um, and I don't know. I don't know a massive amount of. of detail about Agatha Christie's real life uh, but I love the way she's portrayed in that episode and and she has a wonderful line I don't know if you remember it because it was in the, mm-hmm. the series trailer at the yeah. time uh, the thrillers in the, the chase, chase never, never the capture, capture. Yeah. and she's actually talking uh, in speaking in terms of relationships mm. and marriage uh, and yet there's something in there about like the the, the thrill of deduction yes. and and mystery and was uh, to go back to the very beginning of the episode and talking about why do people love murder mysteries and how can you know the oxymoron of a cozy murder mm. and uh, and why is a is a cross European train journey all the more appealing for the threat of murder mm. and I think it's that idea like it, again back to the, the Twin Peaks David Lynch thing about the mystery of the unknown and the the peripheral threat of darkness and the thrill is in the chase. And that's it. That's that's why these books are still being read and will almost certainly still be being read in another hundred years. And and talking of books that will still be being read in a hundred years, our next book um, is another book from the 1930s. Mm. Uh, It's not quite as old as Orient Express, but in some ways feels even older and feels timeless and is still in print and still being read and loved today. And it is, of course... uh, Dennis Wheatley. No, <laughs> we're done with Dennis. <laughs> we're done with Dennis. Um, it's September next month. I know what that means. It's Tolkien month. It's Tolkien Last month. Last year in September, Hobbit, yeah. we uh, covered Lord of the Rings and the then new Amazon series, yeah. The Rings of Power. So this year, yeah. got to do The Hobbit. We're going back and we're doing The Hobbit. Natural so. <laughs> We'll see you then. <laughs>